The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I don't think I will postpone doing something about you until I'm elected. To start with, I think I'll break your neck. Maybe you can do it, maybe you can't, Mr. Kane. Charles, your breaking this man's neck would scarcely explain this note. I know what you think, Mrs. Kane. What does this note mean, Miss Alexander? She don't know, Mrs. Kane. She just sent it because I made her see it wouldn't be smart for her not to send it. In case you don't know, Emily, this gentleman... I'm not a gentleman. Your husband's only trying to be funny, calling me one. I don't even know what a gentleman is. You see, my idea of a gentleman... <laughs> but Mrs. Kane, if I owned a newspaper and I didn't like the way somebody was doing things, some politicians say, I'd fight him with everything I had. Only I wouldn't show him in a convict suit with stripes so his children could see the picture in the paper or his mother. You're a cheap, crooked grafter. We're talking now about what you are. This Mr. Kane makes up his mind, but Amar, that he's so sick he has to go away for a year or two. Monday morning, every paper in the state except his will carry the story I'm going to give him. What story? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, August 9th, 2012. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. And welcome to the show today. Robert Vaughn is away on his annual pilgrimage to the homeland, <laughs> but will return the week after next, which gives me another opportunity to continue on a series of observations and reflections on my summer archiving activities, among other things. So what's our story today, as the question was left in our opener? Well, he who tells the story calls the history, to borrow from a well-known phrase. And, you know, you can really tell a lot about what's happening today and what might happen in the future by simply looking at history. In the second half of our show today, we intend to contrast a few of the romantic notions and misconceptions that people have and have had through history about government and democracy in general. With the concept of real politic or practical politics, pragmatic politics, those words, and what really motivates both. And in the first half of the show today... I will be centered right as we do an update on what I've been discovering in our left, right, and center broadcasts that, have, we have, that we've been uploading to Just Right's website at www.justrightmedia.org. And with that in mind, I want to remind you, 519-661-3600 is the number you can call to join in on the conversation today or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, which is exactly what listener Matthew did way back in June. And uh, he wrote us just the day after we did feedback the last time, so I'm still kind of catching up. I should have got his letter in, but he did write, and this was about mid-June. He says, uh, Bob and Robert, after a year plus of listening and over 50 archive shows listened to, I must say that yesterday's show was, in my opinion, your very best. The show seemed to gain momentum all the way through, and by the end, I heard some of the most clear and passionate arguments you gentlemen have put together well done. Now, Matthew's referring to our June 14th broadcast when we're talking about, uh, among other things, our feedback show on postmodernism, Sunday shopping. And, of course, I think he was talking a lot about Robert's comments uh, around the education system, what he called the lost years. And Matthew writes, 
There are a few things that make me more upset than our current education system. As a father of two young children, it bothers me to no end that I cannot afford currently to have my boys in private school. Today I picked up my son from senior kindergarten and found out that he watched three TV shows in class today. How that constitutes learning is beyond me, but then I remember that he's in French immersion, so the shows were at least in French, right? Wrong. They were in English. Two weeks before, teachers get their two-month paid vacation, and instead of trying to teach kids as much info as possible, this teacher is phoning it in, and there's not a darn thing I can do about it. When I think of my own schooling, I worked very hard to get through university without any debt. And for what? Since then, I've worked jobs any high school graduate could do. However, they cannot get said jobs because everyone has an undergraduate degree now. I was pressured into going to university from every guidance counselor in my high school for what turned out to be a meaningless degree. My wife has had to go back to university to get her master's in order to get a better job even though she has 10 years experience in her field. Students that have been in school for six plus years with no experience whatsoever are getting jobs over my wife with 10 years experience. A master's degree is the new undergrad degree. Soon everyone will have their masters, and that, too, will be worthless. Before I go, I want to thank you for putting left, right, and center radio shows online. In episode 8, Teacher Strike, Bob states that he would like to see the students strike against the teachers. Fifteen years later, it would seem that you've gotten your wish. Although I'm quite certain it's not exactly what you meant or envisaged, I was, it was striking to hear your wish the day after hearing this week's Just Right broadcast. I guess it's like they say, be careful what you wish for, writes Matthew. <laughs> well, thanks for those kind comments, Matthew, and, and we're so glad that you're enjoying the left, right, and centers. Uh, at the time you wrote us uh, this letter in June, we were just starting the project, and there was that first upload after which there were only really eight episodes avail- available. That number as of today stands between 130 and 140 episodes, originally broadcast from late 97 to mid-2000. I already gave a a background on what these shows were about on a previous show. But at the time, must remember, Mike Harris was the Premier of Ontario, Jean Chrétien, Prime Minister of Canada, Paul Martin, the Finance Minister, and the Reform Party was just transforming into, into the United Alternative. There's talk of creating a federal gun registry, and London is talking about a new arena that will be built across from the market in downtown London. Now, you know, in my mind, that seems so long ago, and yet it wasn't. And uh, so that gave me a feeling of how history is compressed in some ways and elongated in others in terms of how we, we, we experience it. Now, I have to confess that I really have no idea what to expect when I start going through the later archives Uh, which were no longer mastered on audio tape, I've been steadily surprised by what I've been able to recover and archive. I'm still guessing that we'll top out around, oh, between 160, 200 episodes, though I can't be sure. After that point, of course, this show, Just Right, began its run back in 2007. So once everything's available and up online, there will be an interesting and valuable continuum of both the debates and the context of the times in which they were discussed from 1997 right till today. Now, of course, Left, Right, and Center, if, I, if you're not aware of that show, this was a show that began being broadcast on another station, ended up here at CHRW, hosted by Jim Chapman, which many of you, who many of you know. I actually wrote to Jim about the Left, Right, and Centers going up online just uh, about just about two weeks ago, I think. 
And I just wanted to let them know that we were about to complete the project, hopefully by the end of this summer. And of course, since it concerned him, I felt he should be let in on it. Now, there's a skeletal under construction directory of the entire archive already accessible on site at justrightmedia.org. You can just click on the left, right, and center link or go slash lrc.htm. All of the links are MP3 audio files. And, uh, you know, just, just this year, having been digitized from the cassette tape originals. Now, you know, I told Jim, I said, you know, I had some misgivings about this project. How would these broadcasts come across in 2012? Would they be too skewed to one side or another? Would they sound dated, you know, et cetera, et cetera? But since hearing them, i got to tell you, none of these concerns materialized. And I told Jim, I said, these broadcasts, these could have been done yesterday. And so I told him, in all honesty, and, and as objectively as I could, since after all I was a participant, that that show was one of the finest and unique radio shows ever produced anywhere at any time. It would have been a tragedy to lose this record of history and of political discourse that is simply timeless. It's a treasure. And Jim replied to me and in part said to me, Hi, Bob, I'm flattered by your comments and honored that you would think enough of the shows to want to archive them and make them available to the public. They were both fun and thought-provoking to do, and I look back on that part of my life with, with great affection. It would be wonderful if people still found something useful in these programs after all these years. And I think I'm pleased to report that I think they will, and certainly from the few people that have found out about them so far. We haven't really even promoted them yet, except for occasionally mentioning them here on the show. So our Left, Right, and Center project has been a bit of a frantic effort, with the hope that it would be complete by the end of August, and it appears that this goal will be met. If you want to see how I eventually arrived at the views that I express here on this show, just right, Left, Right, and Center is a wonderful source of understanding the history of these ideas and how they developed. And most significantly, I think you'll be able to hear the ideas that you hear Robert Vaughn and myself express on this show weekly in direct conflict with and opposition to the left and the so-called right and the center on these, on these shows. When I described the show Left, Right, and Center on a previous broadcast, I was still in the early stages of digitizing and uploading them. And I've got to confess, I completely forgot many of the other dynamics of the feature as it developed over the years. To begin with, it wasn't always Jim Chapman, Jeff Schlemmer, and myself in debate, though we were the original panelists, and over the long term, of course, the most frequent However, as I've been rediscovering, and often to my total surprise, that in addition to the above-mentioned participants, the show was also hosted by Don Kelly, Eddie Matthews, Karen Murray, Jack Burkhart, there's, a, there's an interesting name, Dan Gall, and soon-to-be-digitized Tom Gosnell, of all people, two of those people being uh, former mayors or deputy mayors. And on the left, we had people like Andrew Bolter, Susan Eagle, boy, those ones were hot, Jim Reed and Alenia Dempsey from the Union, Sandra McNee and Marion Boyd, former Attorney General, who was actually the second most frequent regular after Jeff Schlemmer. And uh, we had some very interesting debates, to say, on, to say the least. Now, I managed to appear on most of the shows, but occasionally I couldn't make it for various reasons, and on the right occasionally in my place appeared Lloyd Walker, Robert Vaughn, and my own daughter, Danielle Metz. And believe it or not, I actually got to interview then-Finance Minister Paul Martin. Uh, this was an, ev an event I completely forgot about, believe it or not. You can check it out on November 3rd, 1999, Left, Right, and Center, number 108. It was titled Finance Ministering. 
Now, I was the individual most frequently appearing on the show, proving once again, as I've told many people, that just showing up is the key to winning friends and influencing people. Now, between September 97, when the left-right center feature began, to the spring and summer of 2000, I was on almost every week until Jim Chapman began experimenting with having other members of the community on the feature. And I have to tell you, in all, all honesty right now, although I originally considered archiving those broadcasts as well, they were really dull and boring and so irrelevant to the philosophy and politics behind the left-right-center theme that I simply couldn't bear to do it. I chose only to archive those shows that featured a voice for freedom, which is simply not a perspective to be found really among liberals, conservatives, or NDPers. If you think I'm being harsh about that, listen to the show. In some shows, they explicitly tell me that they're opposed to freedom, literally. And since they're all very explicitly opposed to freedom, listening to a debate about which our rights should be violated and for whose benefit was, you know, and for whose benefit, basically those rights should be violated, was my definition of Tweedledee and Tweedledum, really. Our left, right, and center project is now approaching a very new and different phase. I'm running out of the audio cassette tapes from which I've been digitizing past broadcasts. And now we'll be turning to our archive of MP3 files, which are still a little disorganized. There appears to be some duplication, and I have no idea what I'm going to be running into in terms of the content as I begin to edit and post them on site. But you'll be able to share the experience right along with me because I get them up on site almost minutes after I finished digitizing or working on them. Now, when it comes back to the question we opened up the show with, you know, what story? It's always that, that, that axiom Robert and I discovered. If it isn't written, it didn't happen. And, of course, if something wasn't written, you won't know about it unless it happened to you personally. And what stories make our news and the stories that determine how we vote and how we choose our leaders really all depends upon what story someone chooses to write and publish. Because until that's done, there is no story. And if you don't have a story, you don't have any history. History is, after all, just a series of written stories those that have evidence to corroborate them are the ones considered closer to the facts or the truth, and those that don't aren't. They may be delegated to myth and, myth, myth and legend or other forms of mythology, urban legends. But it's an interesting um, process to watch. And one thing I'm learning from doing this, just because I went through it and I'm sort of going through it again, is that the world is changing faster than we think. What we know about that world outside you know, outside our own sphere of direct experience, depends entirely upon what was recorded or written about that world, particularly in history and in politics. And that's only one story that hasn't been written. There are a million others that will never be written, and therefore they'll never be heard about or never known. And they're all part of history. Those who traditionally report the news, and this is what's really changing today too, are no longer alone. You know, newspapers, television, and radio in terms of being the unquestioned sources of accurate information. And more than that, information that once uh, dissipated after TV, radio, broadcasts ended or the newspaper got tossed out in the garbage and is no longer existent, everything is on the record now, almost permanently written, which of course means recorded in some accessible means. And thanks to the Internet and computer technology, almost permanently available to members of the public. Assuming, of course, we can afford 
to pay our electricity bills and assuming that the power stays on. I've always wondered what would happen if uh, we become so dependent on our technology that we don't record our history and our, techno- and our knowledge base, basically, in other formats. I think it's going to be a problem that uh, future generations are going to have to be faced with. So from this to our next subject on the other side of this break, we'll be taking a review of left, right, and center, an update on some of the things I found, some of the things I argued, some of the things that were argued against me, and then we'll turn to the broader issue of democracy in general. Now, who knows what's wrong with this picture? I'm going to tell you what's wrong with this picture. What's wrong with this picture is that we have no picture. Superman is the biggest story of the day. And the only picture we've got is a picture of a weathercraft. Now, could someone please explain this to me? Well, Chief, the uh, first diagram illustrates the amount of rainfall we're getting this year, and the pie chart... How could you let that that bottom feeder scoop you like this? Bottom feeder? And what were you doing having lunch with her anyway? What are you asking him for? You want to know something? Go out and buy the star. They know everything. I bet they don't know how much rain we got this year. People, I can assure you, if we don't come up with some solid page one stories PDQ, the only writing you're going to be doing is writing your resumes. Now, what have we got? Happens true. Anybody? What in the Sam Hill am I supposed to tell my publisher if he calls? Well, whatever it is, he's waiting to hear it on line one. Just a warning, folks. I've seen papers shut down before, and it's not a pretty sight. It ain't pretty at all. Lois, I love your dress. You're so lucky. You never wear anything off the rack. Preston. Linda. Oh, you look so beautiful. I'm at a loss for words to describe her. I could help you there. Preston, this is Clark Kent. He's a reporter for the Daily Planet. And his date, Lois Lane. Preston Carpenter. Uh, actually, we're a reporting team. The Daily Planet was a fine paper in its day. Fine paper, but things change. And that's a lesson in life, I guess. Either you make it happen, or it happens to you. Excuse me, the mayor would like to have a moment with you. Thank you very much. Yes, excuse me, will you? We're slowed down right now. (laughs) When the media, you know, newspapers in particular, cease to report on the news made by others, and I'm not talking about government, then it tends to make it happen, though not in the physically direct way that the editor of the star in our clip resorted to from that episode of Lois and Clark. Most papers stick to the persuasion part, and if they've got a strong viewpoint... The reality of the news they report is at risk of being bent in favor of the ideology that the paper wants to promote. That's pretty well been the purpose of a lot of newspapers, mainly to to promote a certain ideology. Many of them, however, have had better reputations than others, depending on whether they could separate their editorial viewpoints from their accurate reporting of the news. 
Now, I must say one of the reasons that Robert and I do a show like this, Just Right, is because we want to, quote, make it happen, let people know news items that they might not be hearing in the regular news. And we've certainly earned a reputation on that. You've heard people on this show that you just haven't heard on other news media. One thing I'm glad the other media has certainly picked up on that we helped bring to light here, too, was the whole issue out at EMDC, which, of course, has now become front-page news in the papers. But when it comes to their ideologies, over the past many years, I found myself in direct opposition to most political and philosophic ideas that most of the media promotes. And this is what I found myself really up against in all the past episodes of Left, Right, and Center that I was listening to myself debate with Marion Boyd now. That's the phase I'm going through now and Jeff Schlemmer and all the rest. And it's amazing some of the arguments that they all tend to stick to. The left has a certain game plan and there are certain um, principles, ideas that they just never ever uh, let go. And here's just a list of them. I don't know how many of these I'm going to get through before the end of the hour, but any that I don't, I might fit in at the end of the show. If not, we'll have to get to them later. But how many? I got about 20 here, so let's just see how many I can get through. One of them is, and these are left-wing ideas that are certainly shaping our current political direction. One of them is the belief that poverty can be solved in an absolute sense. And it's really funny how, how you can't get around that. Ideal is simply not good enough for the left. Perfection is the rule. Every circumstance and every instance of poverty must be either prevented or ameliorated. And, you know, it's kind of hard to explain to someone who just has this standard of perfection that that doesn't exist in reality. And not only that, it's not desirable in so many ways. So, you know, often if you eliminate need from society, you're also eliminating necessity. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, that's what drives everything. And if you eliminate too much need, you're not, the society slows down. But that's just one of the minor issues going on in that, in that particular principle. Also, they have this continual belief that profit represents waste. Uh, you can't have a private company do something because they make a profit, you see. But it never occurs to them that the private company also produces losses. And boy, do they get mad when they produce losses. That's, that's intolerable. Almost as intolerable as making money, but not quite. The loss companies get supported over and over and over again. The profit companies get abandoned because, of course, they're making money. And they, they think that's waste. They think it's better that you pay, say, $1,000 for a procedure as long as the person's not making profit than pay $800 for that procedure if the person's making 300 bucks profit. That's what bothers them. And I always tell them it's the price that matters, and they just won't buy it. That's not what matters to them. They're like the people that would rather see the other guy lose more than they lose as long as they're still ahead of them. That's pretty well how it is. It's all egalitarianism. They also have this belief that government controls prevent bad things from happening, as opposed to the understanding that government controls can cause bad things to happen. You know, that side of the argument's never even entertained by the left, except as an exception. So whenever you bring an example to their attention, they'll tell you it's an exception to the rule. That's not the way socialism's supposed to work. That's not, you know, Stalin got it wrong, Hitler got this wrong, everybody got it wrong, because of course the theory never matches the practice. It can't, and it actually does match the practice, but they don't want to believe that. In fact, they have this strange belief in prevention in general, particularly with respect to our healthcare system. On one show in particular, 
<laughs> Marion Boyd in the studio and Gil Warren gets on the phone to argue that if we had preventative health care, people would simply not get sick. I kid you not. They actually believe that you wouldn't get sick, and therefore, if you had preventative health care, we wouldn't have to spend all this money on making sick people better. And like these are the people who determine our hospital policies, you know? The, the, no wonder we're having the lineups at the hospitals we are, because the people there are sick. They're not there for health care prevention and things like that. And so it's just amazing how they stick to that belief. And this goes right back to the beginning of, of health care, you know, believing that prevention was the way that universal health care will work. Well, prevention, you can prevent yourself right up till the day you get sick, but then you want a doctor and you want to know he's there and not be in a line waiting for him. And of course, there's this very selfish belief in altruism. By that, I mean people who want something for nothing for somebody else though it must be universal. That's how they, they get the benefit out of it. You know, selfishness, I define, of course, as living at someone else's coerced expense. Altruism is self-sacrifice and the sacrifice of others, as opposed to charity or voluntary community efforts to achieve a given goal. So they have this very strong belief in altruism, and whenever you, you want to help the poor, don't talk about that, because there's another consistency, and you'll hear it over and over and over again. I'm not saying this just to say it. You can hear it yourself. This opposition to helping the poor from the left. What they want is egalitarianism, and they do it via universality. Everybody has to be in the safety net with nobody holding it up. And this doesn't occur to them that this is a contradiction in terms or that it couldn't possibly work. Even image-wise, if you think about it, it's, it's insane. And yet they cling to this idea. And then there's some, there were some really funny debates where you, they get into these denials that all that the left cares about uh, is money and materialism, while they demand money and materialism, and they blame the right on being interested in money and materialism. Uh, it's just hilarious to hear that. Always talking about other people's money. There is no other solution to almost any social problem you can bring up with the left other than somebody else's money. That's it. What they do with the money doesn't matter. It shouldn't be wasted. How do you define waste when it's being publicly spent? These fundamentals of definitions don't even occur to them. And, of course, the ultimate belief that government is more efficient than the private sector even though the evidence right in front of them and the logic totally precludes such a, con such a conclusion. And, you know, well, private, the private market's okay for computers and things like that, but, boy, not for health care. I don't know why that one should be exempt. I don't know why um, even education should be exempt, but that's how they believe these things. Government's more efficient at. Remember, government is not efficient at delivering services in the way the private sector is. What the government's efficient at is taking money from people without their consent. That's where the efficiency comes from. It's the only efficient thing government can do, and even there it's not that efficient. There's also this standing belief that sales taxes are regressive for the poor while making the rich pay extra, you know, make the rich pay and they do that via graduated taxes, corporate taxes, business levies. That seems, again, to be the answer to everything. First time I ever ran in an election, I was sitting beside a, 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 a Marxist-Leninist, make the rich pay, and then right beside her was the conservative who said, make the rich pay, only he'd said it differently. He said we should have, you know, graduated taxes or something. <laughs> Um, and this is interesting, too, this false belief, and this is by the right wing in particular. Another reason I always like to clear up the fact that we're not right wing here. Uh, 
that economic monopolies are possible in a free market. I was actually challenged in my very early career to prove that, and I couldn't do it. And it made a major change in the way I, out, I looked at things. And, of course, the, the corresponding belief that government has to impose limits on growth and violate certain you know, patents through antitrust laws and things like that. This is really uh, one that the right wing likes to go at. Um, the idea that you can even have such a thing as a competition bureau, that's a right wing idea. Another interesting phenomenon I found is that the left will never answer questions that address their motivations and their goals and means. Even though I always made a point of answering theirs, instead what they do is they switch topics or deflect attention to something else. I can't tell you how many times I've answered so many questions, answered it right right to the T, and then the next question is, yeah, but what about the guy? And then you can just fill in the blank, some, some lonely guy out in the middle of the ocean who needs our help, you know. They'll just invent some circumstance that has to be fit into the big theory. If you haven't got a perfect solution for everyone, well, everything else you said doesn't matter. And, of course, arguing that all I care about as a capitalist is money and that there are other things besides money that should concern us, though on every breath, all the left talks about is other people's money and the wealth and, and their wealth and how it should be redistributed just for the sake of egalitarianism. You know, I'm not the only one not talking about money per se, but I'm the one there talking about morality and how any democratic civilization must function in order to survive. These are the things I'm talking about, and they think I'm talking about money because that's, what th that's what's on their mind. Now, as I was saying just a couple of weeks ago, all of these beliefs and positions can be boiled down to a single motivation, wanting something for nothing, and the attempt to rationalize that motivation through politics under the ever-reliable banner of helping the poor to get some kind of universal benefit for which they themselves, of course, must qualify. The left prefers socialism and central planning to the idea of government welfare, which is based on the principle of only directing assistance to those in demonstrable need. And that's one of the reasons they're opposed to it, because that doesn't really fit into the socialist and central planning ideal. Now, that was our theme, our show theme, three weeks ago, which was also inspired by my listening to the left, right, and centers I was working on. They don't just want to help the poor, they reject this notion because it doesn't give them something for nothing. And of course, the real truth is that the left does not care about the harm and the damage that its policies cause it. And apparently, neither do the voters who vote for them. And that's what I'm going to talk about when we return on the other side of this break. We'll be back. All right, now quiet. It's getting ready to start. The following is a paid political announcement for Holden Thorpe. You dragged us over here to see a commercial for Holden Thorpe? Shh. The man is a fascist. He's like Himmler without the whimsy. <laughs> now, another American for Holden Thorpe. Hi, I'm Marty Crane. Oh, dear God. For 30 years, I was a cop walking a beat in Seattle. Then my hip was shattered by an assassin's bullet. An assassin who wouldn't have been on the street if it weren't for those bleeding hearts we sent to Congress. I used to carry a gun. Now I carry a cane. I'm voting to elect Holden Thorpe. He's running because I can't. Well... Mr. Crane, I don't know what to say. I'm in a state of shock. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> I mean, you were wonderful. <laughs> this calls for a celebration. What do you have? Um, give me a beer. <laughs> Dad, how did this happen? 
Well, I took a walk to the park last week, and they were having a rally for Thorpe. So I started to talk to one of his people and told him I was an ex-cop, and next thing you know, they were shoving a camera in my face. God, this is appalling. Those people are exploiting you. No, they're not. I like Thorpe. Oh, how could you support that odious little hose head? <laughs> I once heard him say, cancer aside, tobacco is good for the economy. <laughs> put more cops on the street. Yeah, well, it couldn't hurt now that everyone and his brother's walking around armed. Makes me glad we don't have so many guns in England. You don't need guns, you got kidney pie. <laughs> going to go live to the command center of the Toronto International Film Festival, where David Ross is standing by. David? Jim, the festival is as star-studded as always, but the deal-makers are also here. With me is Jay Sherrick, one of the Disney executives from L.A., who helped secure all the marketing rights to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for the Disney Company. Is there a Mountie movie or Mountie TV show in the works? Can we expect to see a Mounted Mickey Mouse, Jay? Well, we're still looking for the right vehicle for the Mounties. We figure this is the perfect police force for Disney. We love the fact that the Mountie always gets his man. We love Canadians, and frankly, we think that this whole Mountie thing will be great for Canada. Mind if I jump in here, Jay? Sure. You know, unity is a big issue here in Canada with the threat that Quebec could separate with the next referendum. I'm just curious, what do Americans think about this whole thing? Personally, I feel that, that Quebec belongs in Canada just as a unique place, just the way that Disney World belongs in Florida. Well, that's interesting. So Quebec has another Magic Kingdom, a uh, place the whole family can enjoy, as it were. Well, why not, Jim? I see it as a magical place. I mean, I love the culture of the place. I love the whole look. It's so Euro. It's so old world. I mean, where do you get that? Outside of Disney World, where do you get that in North America? You know, I don't know a lot about these political things, but I would just like to say I would take the Disney model and I would pay to get into Quebec. At the border? Who knows where provinces are going to be in the future, Jim? But I'll tell you one thing. I think I could sell Quebec. I love the accent. I love the whole fur trading thing. Well, that's a very interesting proposition. So people could pay to access different areas of the province. Uh, well, you know, Jim, one thing we've learned at Disney is that Americans feel more comfortable in places that they've paid to get into. Interesting. You know, I loved Hunchback. I just rented it. Terrific movie, great animation. Nobody does it better than you people at Disney, Jay. Well, thank you very much for saying so. And I'll tell you, no one runs a country better than you people in Canada. We love you. Thanks for being with us, Jay. Thanks, Jim. Quebec. How do we keep Canada together? A final thought. A thought from a Disney classic, perhaps. Maybe it would all work if we just wished upon a star. That's the news. I'm Jim Walcott. Good night. Quebec as Disney World. I mean, Jim obviously picked up on what the guy from Disney was saying. And, and the country will stay together if we just wish upon a star. Jim's an idiot. But he gets good numbers. <laughs> and that about sums up politics in general, doesn't it? That's from the newsroom, of course. But he gets good numbers. You know, by the way, you're listening to CHRW, and you're listening to Just Right, 519-681-3999 to give us a call. And uh, sociopathic voters, is that what they are? Or are they sociopathic voters? Or are they just sociopathetic voters? People really don't care about their fellow voters when it comes right down to it. And uh, 
it's really interesting how in religion, politics, and group dynamics, people literally do not care or empathize with the other person. It's like, it's like the collective mind is almost like the sociopathic mind. And you see it in all sorts of events around. You know, the event in Montreal with all the smoke bombs on the subway that the students threw in there and the students who initiated it, the things they're saying. Religious opposition to things like euthanasia on the grounds that suffering has a cleansing value, as was expressed by one letter to the editor-writer. People who support drug prohibition, making crime out of simple possession, and their attitudes to putting such people in prison. Even some comments I've heard about the EMDC problem. And, uh, you know, in terms of, oh, they should make it worse. It's already a hellhole in there. People who want government entitlements. Um, at someone else's expense without considering what that other person is going through or anyone who uses force for what they want. You know, I remember uh, Paul McKeever when he was our guest on the show. He said, but they're hurting someone. You know, that's what they're doing in, to- in terms of trying to um, give a cure for their issues. So I was thinking, the issue really here is really all these romantic misconceptions people have about democracy. It occurred to me most people don't really vote. What they do is really merely cast ballots. In fact, casting a ballot is merely one way of voting. People vote with their feet, with their dollars, and with their attendance at their favorite entertainment spots. In many communist countries where there's only one essential choice to vote for, there's no question that those citizens are not voting, but just casting ballots. And in those countries, citizens are forced to vote. And although they only really get one choice, at least they can say that their vote wasn't wasted. (laughs) In a one-party system, I suppose everybody's vote, you know, goes to the winner, so nobody's vote is wasted. But in free democracies, people all vote for the one true choice, not because they're being forced to, but because they don't want to waste their vote. And this is what I hear over and over again. And this is from William Sapphire's Political Dictionary, 19, which was published in 1978, and that's where I got a lot of my history on this from. I found the term, quote, don't waste your vote, along with an interesting history of how that argument was used in fa- past famous elections. Now, this dictionary defines the term, don't waste your vote, as the slogan of a major party attempting to win back support lost to splinter parties, usually accompanied by the statement, a vote for the splinter party is a vote for major opposition, whatever it might be. You can just fill in the blank. President Harry Truman, fighting his uphill battle in 1948, knew what Henry Wallace's progressive party was drawing votes from people who would ordinarily be democratic. As Truman ripped into the do-nothing Congress... And his committee chairman, he said in Los Angeles, a vote for the third party plays into the hands of the Republican forces of reaction whose aims are directly opposed to the aim of American liberalism. Now, the answer to the don't waste your vote plea is, of course, and this is still from the dictionary, a stand on principle. Said Hearst San Francisco examiner in support of a hopeless cause in 1908, the vote for principle is never thrown away. It is the only vote that isn't thrown away. Felix Frankfurter, explaining his vote for Robert Robert La Follette in 1924, agreed, if clarification of American politics through the formation of a new party is required to make our politics more honest and more real, then all the talk of throwing one's vote away is the cowardly philosophy of the bandwagon. A question in the mind of many American voters is, is my vote really needed? Third parties play on this nagging doubt by urging voters to make your vote count by registering a protest. Major parties appeal on these grounds as well. 
Recalling the importance of a single vote in each election district in the 1960 election, they point out that each vote is important and the frontrunner could lose if that particular voter did not turn out. Worry about the wasted vote is particularly strong in Japan. For some reason, wrote Nobutaki Ike in 1958, Japanese voters do not like to, quote, waste their votes. They are therefore reluctant to vote for a candidate who clearly has no chance to win. By the same token, if they believe that a particular candidate will win by a wide margin, they might shift their vote to someone else. They feel he's going to win anyway, so why shouldn't I make my vote count by giving it to another candidate, end quote. And, of course, that's the logic a lot of people still use today. And one of the reasons people are in favor of things like PR. One of the things you hear me talking about rather favorably on left, right, and center, but you should know I don't really support PR as a policy. and Because uh, really we, what we live in is a two-party system that happens to have more than two parties in it. And that's what makes things difficult. The trick, I suppose, is to become one of the two major parties. Another great statement that I looked at in this dictionary that speaks to the way people vote is that old famous saying, Vox Populi, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. And, of course, that expression was in this book as well. And here's what they had to say on that. The phrase is attributed to Alcuin, an epistle of Charlemagne around the year 800. It was used as the text of a sermon by Walter Reynolds, Archbishop of Canterbury, early in the 14th century at the coronation of Edward III. The voice of the people, through the nobles, had dethroned Edward II. The thought is beautiful and universal. The Japanese language has a parallel proverb. Heaven has to mouth it. Heaven has no mouth, but it talks through the people. However, the phrase has been used to justify the bending of leadership to the popular will, and in that sense has been attacked, for instance, by Alexander Hamilton, who said in a speech to the Federal Convention in 1787, the voice of the people has been said to be the voice of God. And however generally this maxim has been quoted and believed, it is not true to fact. The people are turbulent and changing. They seldom judge or determine right. Theodore Roosevelt, who said, it may be that the voice of the people is the voice of God in 51 out of 100, but in the remaining 49, it is quite as likely to be the voice of the devil, or what is still worse, the voice of a fool. General William Tecumseh Sherman, who wrote in a letter to his wife in 1863, Vox Populi, Vox Humbug, end quote. Walter Lippmann, who in 1925 gave the phrase a narrower meaning, I have conceived public opinion to be not the voice of God, nor the voice of society, but the voice of the interested spectators of action. Dwight Eisenhower, who after viewing the film in Paris of Tex McCrary's Madison Square Garden rally of 15,000 people urging him to come home and run in 1952, yelling, we like Ike, found the voice unclear. Even though we agree with the old proverb, the voice of the people is the voice of God, it is not always easy to determine just what that voice is saying. I continue to get letters from certain of my friends who are almost as violent in their urgent recommendations that I do not make an early visit home as those who believe that I should come, end quote. The phrase has been used as a barb. Abraham Lincoln was called Fox Populi by Vanity Fair. And as the title of a radio show, Vox Pop, and as Doggerel in the presidential campaign of 1920. Cox or Harding? Harding or Cox. You tell us, Populi, you got the Vox. End quote. Uh, 
And so that's what the history a bit of that is. And actually, you know, when it comes to voting, you really got nothing when it comes down to it as an individual. We'll talk about that when we come back after this. Thank you for your call, Susan. We'll be right back after this message. Crime, it's epidemic. It strikes fast and it can strike you. I'm Holden Thorpe. You should send me to Washington because it's better than having you here. <laughs> Piece of work, isn't he? he? Makes it sound like it's either vote for him or be found murdered in your bed. Oh, I wouldn't be concerned if I were you, Roz, but the chances of finding you there alone. <laughs> Council was pretty much the only thing in my life I didn't have to get baked to get through. You took that away from me. How did you know about Walter's boat garage? See, everything that happens in government is motivated by self-interest. Someone's always trying to put one over on someone else so they can get something they want. We're all just nothing but a bunch of selfish assholes. Remember that. And you won't go wrong. Thank you. Well, that's actually a relatively realistic starting point in politics. But there's nothing about accepting that people are motivated by selfish reasons that predetermines the kind of political economic system under which they'll choose to operate. However you may choose to define the term, people are just as selfish in socialist countries as they are in the capitalist ones. Adam Smith understood many years ago that the freedom of people to work to better themselves by being productive and working for their own self-interest is the secret to the greater society's improvement in its general welfare. From this view was coined the term the invisible hand as a euphemism for a very powerful and protective force that seemed to always lead to a betterment of the people's welfare. More importantly, it suggested that the very real visible hand of government was not needed as a regulator of wealth redistribution or of limiting commerce or trade. Now, real politic, power politics. This is out of, again, that same dictionary that I was talking about before, the uh, history of pol political terms. Is, uh, they're defining real politic as power politics with a scientific sound international diplomacy based on strength rather than appeals to morality and world opinion. The coiner was German writer, German writer Ludwig von Rochow in his 1853 Grundsatz der Realpolitik, Fundamentals of Realpolitik, attacking what he felt were the unrealistic policies of the German liberals. The term was particularly applied to Bismarck's policy during and after the years of German unification, writes Professor Donald Cameron Watt in the Fontana Dictionary of Modern Thought and is to be distinguished from a policy of selfish self-interest or from a ruthless reliance on naked power. The German word in Europe continues to mean power politics, but in the U.S. the word is used to mean the realities of politics, which puts it closer to practical politics. And sure enough, there is a dictionary definition of that term as well, practical politics. To some, a euphemism for cynical or dishonest dealing. 
to others, a coming to grips with the reality of people's prejudices and foibles. Practical politics, wrote historian Henry Adams in 1906, consists in ignoring facts. Edmund Burke, in the 1700s, in his letter to the sheriffs of Bristol, made a case for practicality in politics. I'll quote, I was persuaded that government was a practical thing, made for the happiness of mankind, and not to furnish out a spectacle of uniformity to gratify the schemes of visionary politicians. Our business was to rule, not to wrangle, and it would have been a poor uh, compensation that we had triumphed in a dispute whilst we lost an empire. Thomas Jefferson, a student of Burke, surprised his friends with his willingness to occasionally set idealism firmly aside. Quote, what is practical must often control what is pure theory, and the habits of the governed determine in a great degree what is practicable. He considered his own Louisiana purchase unconstitutional, but he told Congress the agreement with Napoleon must be ratified, quote, casting behind them metaphysical subtleties, <laughs> end quote. Did the right thing, by the way. Something Robert and I talked about earlier with respect to uh, even um, constitutions and w whether they're a guide or a hindrance. And in the Eisenhower years, the word practical was used for cynical, though it fell short of dishonest. In the Kennedy years, again and again in the 70s, pragmatic gained popularity for political leaders who thought of themselves as problem solvers. Although pragmatic is rooted in affairs of state, its meaning became close to practical with the modern flavor and is now lodged between dogmatic and principled, according to that dictionary, something I'm not too sure about in that conclusion. I found these, that these perspectives on real politics were kind of apart and removed from that of Kevin Williamson, whose politically incorrect guide to socialism that we reviewed way back when on the show described real politics as a philosophy of Bismarck, which we might render in English as pragmatism. Again, the same word comes up. It was real politic and not romantic socialism that thereby led to the establishment of Europe's first major welfare state. Social insurance programs, health, ins health insurance entitlements, old age pensions, disability benefits, and restrictive labor laws, end quote. Now, another measurement of public opinion is something called world opinion, which I thought was interesting as well. And that is defined as the moral force, real or imagined, of the anticipated reaction of uncommitted nations or of leaders not firmly aligned with any international power group. The idea is rooted in the Declaration of Independence. A recent, or a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. The phrase was probably written by Thomas Jefferson, who used it later. The good opinion of mankind, like the lever of Archim Archimedes, with the given fulcrum, moves the world. Daniel Webster, speaking to the House of Representatives on January 19, 1823, about the Greek Revolution, gave the phrase its moral overtones. Quote, moral causes come into consideration in proportion as the progress of knowledge is advanced, and the public opinion of the civilized world is rapidly gaining an ascendancy over mere brutal force. As can be seen, many political leaders have made obeisances to the opinion of mankind and world opinion, which is now more frequently used than the Jeffersonian phrase. In practice, however, the requirements of a national policy have often led to decisions contrary to the dictates of world opinion. 
who, after all, forms world opinion. In most cases, the phrase is used to mean its effect on the uncommitted nations of the third world and other neutralist forces in Western nations. Not all of these, however, feel bound by world opinion themselves. India's takeover of Portuguese Goa, an enclave on its coast, flew in the face of world opinion, at least in Western eyes, but accomplished what India's leaders felt was an important national goal. South Carolina Congressman Mendel Rivers, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, urged in September 66 that the U.S. quote, flatten Hanoi if necessary and let world opinion go fly a kite. This was generally regarded as a hardline extreme. By the way, extreme is one of those anti-concepts. Extremely what? That's the question you have to answer. Ralph Waldo Emerson suggested a kind of compromise in 1841. It is easy in the world to live after the world's opinion. It is easy in solitude to live after our own. But the great man is he who, in the midst of the crowd, keeps with perfect sweetness the independence of solitude. And then this brings us to our final definition, which is power politics. Political or diplomatic action guided by the principle that might makes right. Professor Hans Morgenthau, who became well-known in the 60s for his attacks on U.S. policy in Vietnam, wrote in 1950, The illusion that a nation can escape, if only it wants to, from power politics into a realm where action is guided by moral principles rather than by considerations of power, is deeply rooted in the American mind. He made the point that the word, the world politics as practiced in 1950 and power politics were synonymous. Quote, the choice is not between moral principles and the national interest devoid of moral dignity, but between one set of moral principles divorced from reality and another set of moral principles derived from political reality. Reality is the operative world, word in power politics. Uncle Joe is a realist, FDR was reported to have said about Joseph Stalin. And real politic is now used interchangeably with power politics, though the former has a scientifically impersonal connotation, and the latter calls up a picture of a big nation pushing little nations around. Practical politics has some pejorative connotation, but is usually considered the art of the possible. Power play is the art of running roughshod over the opposition. And that's pretty well some of the definitions he brought to our attention in that book. And this brings me back again to some of the things we were discussing in left, right, and center. And if you get to listen to them, you'll find the only things I really had going for me during those debates was this philosophical awareness and an acceptance of reality and reason as my basic guides. From that, I was able to do a lot of things, including polarizing the debate, which must be done in order to be able to define the basic contrast in ideology. It also allowed me to test these ideas, the ones you hear me express here, that I discovered against those who disagreed with them. I always recall being ready to change my mind on an issue if my opponents can convince me of the merit of his or her argument, but that just never happened. It kept going the other way. And, you know, many people do have a philosophical awareness, but nevertheless do not accept reality in ways they may not even realize. For example, when they argue that preventative health care will prevent sickness altogether. So I guess I have to conclude the show on a point like, why reality? Well, if you think about it, reality is the only fixed point of commonality that all things share, living and non-living alike. And no matter how different our cultures or indeed our species, all exist in that same physical reality, which we can call the universe. 
And to, do, to the degree that we acknowledge that reality, then we will be able to coexist, exchange values, and have a civilization that prohibits violence, and that can be one that's based on morality. Whether one is speaking of earthbound cultures or space-traveling aliens. So I guess all I can say is get real already. If you haven't done so already, check out our left, right, and center archive at www.justrightmedia.org. And of course, you can also hear all of our past broadcasts of Just Right at the same location. Lots of changes going on on site. We'll probably talk about that more in the future. For now, we've got to go for another week, and we'll return next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. We'll see you then. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Boris says we'll never win the war on poverty Till all those poor people surrender (laughs) 